Hello, and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast, your source for interviews with people from all across the tropical fish keeping hobby. I'm your host, Randy Reed. Please subscribe and check out all previous episodes on Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, or AquarisPodcast.com. You can also check out additional content by following the Aquarius Podcast Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts. If you like what you hear, please rate and leave a review for the show. Enjoy the interview. Today's date is Friday, August 17th, 2018. My guest today is Dr. Joe Scanlon. Dr. Joe is a lifelong aquarist with over 70 years in the hobby. Joe is a killifish fanatic with an in-depth body of knowledge on killifish native to North America. Joe is a lifelong member of the American Killifish Association, a member of North American Native Fishes Association, and is presented at numerous fish conventions. Like myself, Joe is passionate about growing the hobby and the importance of encouraging the youth to experience fish keeping. So Joe, welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. Thanks for asking me to be on the podcast. No, absolutely, Joe. Um, I'm definitely glad that we have a, a chance to, to bring you on and share your knowledge with the audience, um, especially when, you know on a topic like North American uh, native killifishes. Um, I think this is a, a really cool topic that a lot of people here in the States, maybe in Canada, maybe in Mexico, uh, they're not fully plugged in with the, uh, the killifishes that we have um, in uh, our home country or, or in the, you know, the, the North American continent. So it's great to have you on to talk about that. So to get started, um, you know, let, let's start with the, uh, with the standard kind of opening of what is your origin story? You've been in the hobby for over 70 years. Uh, why don't you just kind of walk through the beginning and in your progression through the hobby? Well, I started out probably like most of us have started out. Uh, my best friend had a father who bought a little two-gallon aquarium and put some guppies in it with some snails and some plants. And that was my first real exposure. And at that time, I was in high school. And uh, I got interested in it. So the next thing you know, I bought one and uh, did the same thing. And then, of course, the interest uh, and the number of fish available even back then was pretty good and you could get all sorts of fish and I had a community aquarium and I got bigger aquariums and then it seems I got real busy and kind of left the hobby for a while as I was uh, in college and med school and so forth um, but then I, I, again I returned to the hobby as, as I got older and had some time to devote to the hobby the problem with the aquarium hobby is it's kind of uh, it's kind of infectious, and uh, it seems like when you when you start out you pretty simple. The next thing you know, uh, you're starting to breed fish and have little babies and have to have a place find a place to put them, and so you go out and you buy another aquarium, and and I soon develop a, a great interest in the reproduction of fish. And it wasn't just satisfied to sit there and watch a bunch of pretty fish swimming around in an aquarium. So that's that's how it got to you. And uh, I've had people say it's a disease. <laughs> I think in some ways it is a disease. You get started in the hobby and then you can't control it. Well, we do call it multiple tank syndrome. And I definitely think that uh, calling it 
um, you know, it, it, it definitely is something that is infectious. I think almost that's a, that's an understatement of what this hobby is for us. Um, so can you kind of paint a picture of, I guess, uh, how many tanks are in your current, uh, selection right now? Because you're not just, you know, tanks in a particular fish room. I, I, I know in previous conversations, you're, you, you kind of expand outside of just the normal fish room. <laughs> that's an understatement. Um, yeah, I don't count the number of aquariums I have. I have uh, from 55 on down to two-gallon aquariums. And uh, I've kept fish in the house and to the point where my wife said, look, they've got to go. You can't keep doing this. So next thing you know, I had some aquariums in the barn. And I found out that uh, heat in the barn was a little expensive in the wintertime. So uh, that evolved into where uh, a place where I keep all the native fish because you don't require any heating at all for the native fish. And uh, so the native fish mostly in the barn uh, have uh, tropical fish mostly in the house, have uh, some native fish out in the hot tub, an abandoned hot tub turned into a fish tank. Uh, then I did a couple of ponds. I had started one nice pond out as a koi pond, put a waterfall in it and everything, and then decided after many years of doing that that I needed a stream. I attached a stream, put another pond at the end of the stream, and cycled the water from the upper stream, from the upper pond to the lower pond. And I dug all that by hand. I'm a kind of a workaholic, and I love to do physical things. And uh, so I've got fish just about everywhere. I, I've got a, a above-ground ponds, in-ground ponds. Um, it's just everywhere. Yes. <laughs> it's a full-time job. So, Joe, you definitely, um, you know, your explanation of the fish that you have, you know, I, I knew in previous conversations about the uh, fish barn, which, you know, listeners out there, if you don't have a fish barn, then you're, you're just not on the same level as, uh, as Dr. Joe here. <laughs> That's pretty awesome to have a fish barn. Uh, but yeah, to hear about the, uh, the, the ponds, uh, the two ponds and then connecting with the stream, that was news to me. And that's, that's just fantastic that, uh, you know, you're, I'm going to call it a fish compound at this point. So your fish compound, um, you know, has all of these various types of features and various places where, where you're keeping these fish. And, um, I, I can only imagine, you know, it almost be great to have your wife on here just to get a quick little, uh, snippet of, of what her thoughts are right now. <laughs> Well, she tolerates all of this, and that's that's wonderful. We've been married for 54 years, and uh, she's tolerated all of this. Now, I do know guys in the hobby who have let the hobby come between them and their wife, so uh, or their husband, as the case may be. Uh, so, and, and my wife is an outdoor person, and she likes to go with me collecting fish, and she pulls the other end of the seine, and uh, most of the guys in the American Killifish Association and, and the uh, North American Native Fish Group all are very envious because none of them have wives that even want to get their feet wet. So I've been kind of fortunate in that regard. Uh, you're, a lucky, you're a lucky man, Dr. Joe. That is fantastic. Um, I'm curious, before we dive into the North American killifish, um, what other tropical fish are you keeping right now? And are you, um, you know, is in-depth in the breeding um, and really understanding those fish as well, or are they just more kind of community, you know, play play tanks, if you will? 
Well, first of all, I don't usually have community tanks. Most of my tanks are devoted to one species, and of course, in the outdoor pond, they have an opportunity to put in a lot of different species together. Uh, but for most of the aquariums, I'd say, uh, are for one species, and almost always the purpose is to try to reproduce the fish. I'm interested in collecting eggs and uh, collecting, raising young fish, uh, and then shipping them to other folks who, who can enjoy the fish. Oh, that's excellent. Do you have any one or two species you'd like to highlight from your uh, tropical fish before we talk about the natives? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, recently, I, I made a trip to Aruba and uh, visited uh, 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 Franz Vermulen, who is uh, a real avid collector of Central American and South American uh, killifish. He makes frequent trips there and collects fish. And he gave me some Renova Ascari, which is an, uh, a brand new uh, species, as far as I was concerned, I had, had never seen one before, and um, I've been having a lot of success. Right now, I've got about thirty uh, young ones swimming around in a ten-gallon aquarium. Uh, they're really a, one of my most fascinating fish because when I got the fish, uh, I was told it's probably a what we call a peat or a dirt diver. And a lot of these uh, Central American and South American fish will dive into the mud in the bottom of the pond or the stream and lay eggs and spawn in buried completely in the mud. And uh, but I found out uh, Franz actually found out he has a video that you can see of the Renova Ascari fish, uh, and it's on the internet. Of course, it's available and. Uh, if you watch the fish, they don't really dive completely in. They'll dive in, but then they'll kind of come out, and they're really kind of spawning half-buried in the, in the mulch. Uh, and uh, that's the fascinating thing about killifish. They have so many different ways of spawning, and uh, that's, uh, to me, is the most, some of the most interesting things about keeping the fish. And like I've said before, I don't keep the fish just to look at them. I like to reproduce them and see if I can distribute them around to other folks. Oh, that's great, Dr. Joe. And so now let's go ahead and uh, kind of segue into the North American Native Fish Association. So, you know, some of, one of my first questions is, how did you get interested um, in these fish when, you know, granted you started with guppies and other tropical fish, I guess, how did you find out about them? Um, and then what, you know, what really got you into them and, and kind of talk about some of your work with them? Well, uh, I would I would say that uh, the North, the uh, American Killifish Association probably helped me more than anything in really getting interested in uh, some of our native fish. And uh, the reason the reason that happened is there's just so much generosity in the. Uh, American Killifish Association, and uh, some of the people I met there were just so nice and so generous and helpful, um, and I, I uh, met a guy that everybody knows in the, in the American Killifish Association named Charlie Nunciata, and he's one of the members of the Suncoast Killy Society, which is based down in uh, Tampa. Incidentally, it's it's really interesting 
to me that there's there's so much interest in killifish and in fish in general in the north and in the south, but there's not a whole lot of interest in our my particular area. Uh, there's no, for instance, there's no fish hobby at all in Alabama, and I'm not aware of hardly any activity at all in Mississippi, and certainly not too much in Georgia, although Georgia probably has more interest in, I know more than we do. Uh, but when you meet all these nice folks, and they're so generous to you, and uh, I invited one fellow to come down and visit me, and he came down and uh, visited about, oh, 20 years ago, and he was talking about a fish that he liked to collect in Alabama when he came through Alabama, uh, and the fish was friendless bifax, and that's how I got interested in it. And that fish, Fungus bifax, is known as a stippled studfish, and we have three different studfishes here in Alabama. Uh, the one in the north in the Tennessee River area is uh, uh, is uh, Fungus catenatus, and then we have uh, in the in the middle part of the state, in the lower part of the state, we have the southern studfish which is fungus um, um, stellifer. And then there's a very limited number of fungus bifax kind of in the middle of the state uh, from along the Tallapoosa River system. Now, I know that doesn't mean much to your audience, but uh, Alabama has more water running through it than any state in the Union. I mean, we've got massive river systems. Uh, the north has the Tennessee River system, and the south has the Coosa and the Tallapoosa system. And uh, the fungus bifax is only found in a few creeks in the uh, in the Tallapoosa system. And I got interested in that because uh, this fellow told me uh, that it was getting rare and it was hard to find. And so. My wife and I got together. We decided we're going to see if we can find some, and we started going up there collecting. And that's how that, that all got started. So uh, <laughs> it's kind of a, a funny story how you can get obsessed with something, but I've, I've become obsessed with a fish and have spawned it several times. Uh, before I did that, no one had any uh, knowledge of how the fish even spawned, and there was a lot of conjecture. Uh, but... It's, it's been a, quite an experience. So, Joe, I guess uh, one of my questions is, what exactly makes a studfish? Ah, good question. And I'm not sure I can, I can really tell you that. Uh, the studfishes belong to a group we, we call the Sinisma, and there's a very limited number of them. Um, the Sinisma fish are, the, are a subgroup of the genus Fundalus. And in North America, most of the killifish are in the genus Fundalus. And uh, the Zanisla group is the studfish group, and that is just a subgroup of that particular, of a, of that, of a genus, Fundalus genus. Gotcha. And then just to make sure that, you know, the audience, we're all, we're all aware here, these, these while they're killifish, um, and, and Joe Ferdenzi and I, we, we talked about this before, um, these particular ones, or at least on the subject, these ones are going to be annuals, correct? These are not the, or I'm sorry, these are non-annuals. These are not the annuals that have a very limited lifespan that have to basically breed in one season, um, and then they're done, correct? 
Absolutely correct. And uh, as as you keep this fish, it gets bigger and bigger. They're pretty large fish. They get about five and a half inches, uh, and uh, they they will spawn more than one year. Uh, I've kept some long enough to know that in the first year, some of those fish act like they want to spawn, but they really don't. I don't think they're very fertile after the first year. But then by the second year, uh, you can start collecting the, the eggs and, and uh, collecting the, the fish fry. Uh, I would say the fish probably lives as long as five years, but they're probably not very productive after a couple of years. And so that all kind of sounds like what adds up to the formula of um, potentially making a, a fish at risk, right? So a fish that within its first year of life isn't the most productive when it comes to reproduction, um, you know, and then it's only going to have a, a relatively limited lifespan after that. And so on top of that, uh, the other pressures facing this fish. So I guess what are some of the other things that are, um, that are, are, are making the peril of the bifacts um, actually a reality? Well, uh, I've been lucky in that regard in finding out really what's going on with the fish because uh, Bruce Stallsmith, who's a professor at, at Huntsville, professor of uh, ichthyology there at Huntsville University of Alabama, uh, and uh, he and I have gotten together and have gone to this, the creeks looking for this fish. So he did a survey about three or four years ago uh, looking for fungus bifacts to see if they really were disappearing. And uh, the results of his survey seem to indicate they definitely are in decline. They're getting harder to find. Uh, this this is uh, due primarily to several things. Uh, fungus bifacts was found in Georgia back in the, uh, in the 90s. Uh, in the, uh, I think right up to about 1989 or something like that, uh, they were there. But Georgia, with the Atlanta area expansion going on, uh, has really uh, degraded the western part of the middle part of the state where, where the Tallapoosa system originates. And uh, so the fish actually disappeared, as far as we can tell, from Georgia quite a few years back. I went with Bruce, uh, Brett Albanesa, who uh, was in charge of the uh, non-game fish species, fish and game, uh, natural resources, uh, Georgia. Uh, and we went, and this was uh, about, oh, 10 years ago, and we went looking for the fish. And uh, we couldn't find it. We looked in several Georgia streams and in places where it had previously, historically, had been found there, but it's gone as far as we can tell from Georgia. And so wherever there's human activity, especially things like chicken farms, pig farms, where lumbering is uh, going on intensely, uh, you'll see the quality of the water in those areas degrades. And, of course, that leads to the loss of the fish. 
Yeah, and so so we talk a lot about you know what's happening in the Amazon rainforest. We talk about over in Southeast Asian uh, Asian countries the the palm oil plantations that are coming in. Um, recently, I talked with Jose Gonzalez about um, kind of the same basically urban industrial development in in Central Mexico. Um, and here, you know, as a United States citizen, we have that going on in our own in our own country in our own states, um, where it is then impacting a native fish. Very true, uh, of course. That's another thing I could talk about. The uh, situation in Mexico and the southern United States is pretty bad in terms of uh, water usage uh, because there's so much uh, demand for water in these areas. Uh, the a lot of the streams and ponds in and uh, particularly in northern Mexico are disappearing, and there's a pupfish that lives there uh, called. Uh, Suprinidon alvareza, known as the Potosi pupfish. And the Potosi stream or pond has completely disappeared because of pumping of groundwater. And the result is the fish is extinct. Now, it's extinct in the world, but it's not extinct in the hobby. And I do have a bunch of those swimming around in my hot tub right now. They've been uh, productive for me. Uh, I'm getting lots of young fish, and I've been doing this uh, for the last three or four years now. Uh, and, of course, the pupfish, because it's extinct, is a fish that you actually can have, and you can actually handle an extinct fish. You really cannot handle or have an endangered species, but an extinct fish, yes. And uh, so there's quite a few of us in the American Killifish Association who are interested in these pupfish and are trying to keep them. Uh, some people are keeping multiple uh, species of these pupfish. And they're wonderful little fish. If you ever see one and you're an Aquarius, you're going to want to have one because they're, they're a fish that's very active. They're swimming all the time. Their activity is so amusing that people thought, well, they act like little puppies. And so that's hence the name pupfish. And so most of them have brilliant blue colors and black bands. Uh, the uh, Potosi pupfish has a completely dark black rim on the caudal fin, uh, and it's gloriously blue. There's the only way to describe it. In the sunlight, they just shine. And the activity is amazing to watch. The males are in constant display and combat with each other. Uh, a wonderful fish to have. And so I'm working real hard with some other members in the AKA to try to keep that fish going. Wonderful little fish. So Joe, would it be a fair um, assumption or a fair statement for me to say if there was a listener out there that um, was really excited about that pupfish that you just talked about, or maybe one of these other killifish um, that, that we've been discussing, uh, would it would it be a safe bet to say that if they started by joining the American Killifish Association um, and started going through uh, the the was it bi-monthly journal that comes in or being active on the forums, if they were seeking to perhaps, you know, own and, and try to help uh, help these pupfishes, uh, is that a really good place for them to start? Absolutely. And uh, we, we, as a group, we're, what we're trying to do is, is graze this fish and try every year, if we can, to exchange fish. 
the purpose is this. We know that in order to maintain any particular uh, species, you need to have multiple, multiple animals. You can't just have a dozen or a half a dozen and think you're going to successfully keep that fish on the planet. Uh, no, you've got to have a, a genetic exchanges have to go on. Uh, people have to do things like, for instance, uh, this particular fish. You don't really want to keep this fish uh, in an area where it never gets exposed to the cold because that could cause a loss of that particular gene that keeps this fish alive. The fish in that uh, hot tub uh, experienced a little freeze last year. I mean, there was uh, about a half or a quarter of an inch of ice on the water. And people think, well, it's a desert fish and it loves the heat. And in fact, it does love the heat. But it also, I think, needs cold for a lot of, a lot of our native fish. Uh, require a cold period. The female uh, does not develop eggs if she's not a, in a period of extreme quietness and sort of like dormancy. It's like a stupor that they go into in the wintertime where they seem to disappear and there's no activity and nothing's going on. It's probably during that time we think that the eggs are developing in the female. So if the, if the fish doesn't have that kind of an exposure, uh, you might end up with a fish that is losing some of its genetic qualities, and you don't want that. So like I said, we're trying to have people exchange fish uh, every, every year, if possible, with others who have the same species. And the problem with pupfish is that they look so much similar that it would be real easy to mix them up. So that, that's one reason I've decided, well, the Potosi pupfish is going to be my pupfish. I'm going to keep that fish alive as long as I can. I'm going to keep them going as long as I can. Oh, very cool. Yeah, and I, and I would say that those fish are probably pretty excited the fact that they're in an old jacuzzi. I mean, I know if I was a fish, I'd be pretty happy if my <laughs> if my home was an old uh, hot tub. Um, but, I mean, everything that you just said, Joe, I think was very, very important for people that uh, maybe their only exposure right now to the hobby has been with tropical fish. Um, and, you know, yes. that, that default aquarium setup has always been in an insulated home and it's always had a heater and it's always been maintained at one temperature, right? Um, so that, that knowledge that these are going to be fish where you may want to actually keep them outside or you may want to keep them without a heater or you may want to move them to a garage, um, all in the hopes that you have that temperature fluctuation um, and the fish can actually get that seasonal variation in temperature um, as, a, as a vital part of it. It's, um, you know, annual, annual cycle, if you will, you know, for the, for the females to have that period where they can rest and develop eggs or whatever it may be, um, just to ensure that it is a healthy population, that it's a healthy fish. Um, so again, I would say, you know, joining the American Killifish Association, um, and I don't want to leave out the North American Native Fish Association, join them as well. They've got some pretty cool merchandise from past conventions. Um, so you can order that. Everybody knows I love t-shirts. Um, join both of those uh, bo join both of those organizations um, and really immerse yourself in all of the information um, and see if you know this is something that you still truly want to get into and I and I really would challenge people that you know keep your normal awesome cool tropical fish tanks your goldfish tanks your exotics all that fun stuff uh, but you know dedicate one tank you know dedicate um, uh, an outdoor uh, stock tank 
to, you know, one of these native pupfishes, whether it's the one from Alabama or it's one from central Mexico. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. It would be wonderful if we could get uh, more people involved in the hobby. Uh, like I said, here in Alabama, there are, I, I think we have three or four members of the AKA, which well, I never see them. You know, there's no fish club. There's no, there doesn't seem to be a lot of interest. Whereas when you go out in your area of the country, out in Oregon and in California, uh, and Washington, there, there seems to be a lot of interest out there. And then there's a lot of interest in the tropical fish hobby and fish in general in uh, the northern part of our country, uh, New York and uh, uh, Milwaukee and places like that. There's a lot of interest. And they all have their own little clubs and and they have a lot of activity, and you can go visit their meetings. So if you live in one of those states, look at the local killifish association and go go to one of their meetings and, and see what they're doing. And the first thing you're going to notice is, golly, I've never met so many friendly people. They're the friendliest people in the world, and they all love the same thing you do. They love fish. And, uh, and it, it, it gets to the point where, Sometimes you feel like, well, I'm really going to the meeting this year because I want to see so-and-so and not necessarily because I want to see a new fish. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. I mean, and especially, you know, when you're when you have a spouse or significant other that isn't as as, you know, uh, open to the idea and as adventurous as, you know, Mrs. Scanlon, um, you know, it's it's great to be able to have that touch point, maybe local in your area that where you can have a face-to-face conversation with somebody that's as uh, enthusiastic about the fish hobby as yourself. Um, and so, so Joe, we do have listeners in the South. I know Alabama, uh, Mississippi, we do get downloads in, in all 50 states. So my listeners in, in Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia, uh, what's going on with your fish club scene? Right, like, how do you guys not? Uh, Joe's doing a lot with fish. It sounds like he's pretty. He's up to his eyeballs um, in terms of being busy. Uh, let, let's see if we can get an Alabama fish club started. Uh, I don't know, call it the Crimson Tide Fish Club or you know Auburn Orange Fish Society, whatever you want to call it. But uh, let's see if we can get a, a fish club well, going for you. You really can't do that. Cause <laughs> then have the state, have the state won't right. go. <laughs> So, uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, it's really a shame that we don't have uh, a fish club in our area. And I've, I've been pushing for that. The problem is that by advanced age, I'm not really, uh, I'm not really that uh, uh, interested in becoming a leader. And I know if I try to start something, they're going to say, well, you need to be the president. And I don't really want to be the president. <laughs> No, I don't. I don't. I don't blame you, Joe. I really don't. There's some. There's some young buck out there. There's some, you know, college kid listening to this right now with uh, with a little bit of free time, or you know, some some prof- young professional in his thirties who uh, who's got the bandwidth to to take on that challenge. So so we'll leave it to them. Uh, and Joe, before we Absolutely. before we go on, um, or I guess before we conclude this conversation, one of the topics I want to talk about, um, and I've done a little bit of searching on the forums on this one, and it, and it's one of those things where you, you search a topic, and it's pretty polar in terms of the opposition or the or or the the posts in favor of it, and that's going to be buying worms, uh, earthworms, redworms from a bait shop, 
and feeding those to your tropical fish as opposed to um, cultivating them yourself, whether you're digging them up from your yard or you've actually got like a little earthworm or redworm farm going. Um, and within that, I've actually seen posts that say that only earthworms, redworms have a natural toxin to them that fish don't care for. Um, but I know reading some of your papers and some of the work that you've done, um, you feed earthworms and you feed redworms. So why don't you walk me through and help me understand uh, in the the worm feeding world, according to Dr. Joe Scanlon, what is your opinion? Oh, I've got very strong opinions about that. Um, first of all, I think that if you have fish and you're trying to get them to breed, uh, you're being very foolish not to take advantage of earthworms. I find the earthworms seem to be the most accepted fish, probably the for fish, uh, probably the only other food item, natural food item, that all fish seem to really go for are mosquitoes. And uh, nobody wants to raise mosquitoes, but I, I'll confess that I do that all the time. I just make sure they don't fly out of the water and that they get fed to the fish before that happens. But everyone should keep earthworms in the house. Keep them in your house. Go get a... 20-gallon or 30-gallon container, plastic container at your local Walmart store, and uh, throw in some uh, old newspaper. Don't get the plastic newspaper. Just get uh, the pure paper paper and tear it up, throw it in there, throw in some uh, sphagnum moss, uh, some peat moss, uh, throw in some coffee grounds, throw in all of your vegetable waste, all of it. Every bit of vegetable waste that you generate should go in that into that container, along with uh, the earthworms. Uh, I find they love coffee grounds. So if you have access to somebody that has a lot of coffee grounds, maybe your local coffee store, um, use that. They love that. Uh, if you think it's going to get a little acid, throw a little lime in there. Uh, and you will be amazed at what happens. Uh, you will have more earthworms growing in your house with no odor. Uh, you put the lid on, but if you get too much going in there, you get too much heat generated by the plant material, uh, that's not good. Uh, so you want to have some ventilation. Probably the best thing is drill a hole in the lid and, and fill that hole with some uh, cotton or something so that there's some air circulating through there. Everybody is afraid to do it. They think it's going to smell bad, uh, and when they do it and find out they can't even smell it at all, uh, then, they, then they're hooked, and you'll never have to buy another earthworm. Okay, so that that is fantastic to know. So now let's say that let's play the scenario out that um, I am an urban city dweller, and somehow though I've got some pupfish that love earthworms. <laughs> this is a really weird scenario. Um, I have no space whatsoever to cultivate my own earthworms, and I have zero access to coffee grounds, which is incredibly weird. Again, I know, um, and I can only go to a bait shop. Is it okay to feed those earthworms from the bait shop? Um, into so I, I, I get that it's okay to start your um, earthworm farm with those, but is it okay to take those guys straight from the bait shop, chop them up, feed them whole, whatever it may be, to my fish? What is your opinion on that? Well, the, the problem with earthworms is 
they they do have uh, insects that uh, will attack them, and of course they use pesticide on earthworms in a lot of the commercial places to keep them from getting invaded by the uh, insects. So uh, yeah, I would be afraid to do that, and I do not do that. Uh, okay, but but is it so? It's okay though to start out with those in your farm. Oh, of course. Okay, and then how long? Sure. Would, and then how long would you want to go? Though? With a dozen worms, and you'll end up with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of worms. Okay, so I mean, is it is it you know start your farm? You, it's okay to start with the bait shop worms, but give it you know two or three weeks before you actually dig back in there and start pulling worms out. Uh, yes, to get started, it may take a week maybe two, uh, it'll be slow at first, but once it gets started, uh, it's a rapid process. And uh, every once in a while, after you've been doing this for a few months, you'll want to take that uh, earthworm material that you have and use it on your plants that you're growing in your garden. Uh, that's the best compost in the world. Now, I had an interesting experience a few years ago. I noticed that the earthworms I was growing in my barn in my container had developed some some maggots. Uh, these were rather large larval maggots that are about, I'd say, about a, almost an inch long. And uh, I thought, oh, my God, look at these horrible things. It turns out that those horrible things were uh, black soldier flies. Oh, that's and black good stuff. Are the, becoming the number one fish food. If you look at uh, there's a a, a a product out called Bug Bites. That's what I feed. Yeah, yeah I feed, yes. I do, and a, I do a lot of Bug Bites. Soldier fly larva. Yeah, and they say the black soldier fly larva. So I watched uh, the, so the Bug Bites. That's produced by Fluval. They make it in uh, a few different ver uh, varieties. I use uh, the bottom feeder and also the, uh, the the tropical fish formulas of that. But again, you know, primary ingredient uh, being the, the soldier fly larva. At least I'm pretty sure that's the primary ingredient in it. Um, but I, I think it's fantastic. I feed it to almost all of my fish um, as kind of a daily food source in addition to other, you know, fun little live foods and frozen foods. Um, but yeah, that, that black soldier fly larva, they also, um, you know, make powders out of that. And, and, and I want to say it goes into human consumption. So if you go back and watch that Fluval video and then watch more videos by that company or, or, um, the, uh, either up in Canada is, uh, is where Fluval is getting their black soldier fly larva from. Uh, it's pretty interesting stuff what they're doing with that, uh, black soldier fly. Yeah, apparently it's been used for years, uh, by chicken, uh, Farmers and people who use uh, want to feed their chickens some live food, good organic live food. Excellent. Well, Dr. Joe, thank you very much for taking time out of your day to speak with me on the Aquarius Podcast. It's it's been an absolute pleasure, and you know, you and I we've connected a couple times um, outside of this show, and I and I just felt like it would be a perfect fit to have you on, and I'm so glad that you agreed to come on and share your knowledge. Um, and especially on the earthworm topic, I mean, that's that's going to be an added bonus for everybody listening. Um, you heard it straight from a doctor. Now, he may not be a fish doctor, but he is a doctor, though. So <laughs> thank you very much, Dr. Joe. I appreciate your time. Well, thanks again. I do appreciate it, and we'll have to do it again sometime. Absolutely, sir. You have a good day now. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you again for listening to the Aquarius Podcast. As always, get involved in your local fish club, help grow this wonderful hobby, and have fun with other fish nerds.